Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Highway Community Podcast for Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. Today, we are continuing our teaching series for the Lenten season entitled Stations of the Cross, where, inspired by the centuries-old church tradition, we are endeavoring to walk with Jesus along the way of the cross. And as we do that, we're paying particular attention to the isolation and the loneliness that Jesus experiences as he is progressively and systematically abandoned. Last week, we looked together at Jesus's encounter with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and we saw how alone and how isolated Jesus was as he came face to face with the ruling power of his day. Jesus entered into the Roman political and legal system without status and wholly unknown to Pilate, which we saw left Jesus really, really vulnerable to injustice. And ultimately, he was condemned to death. This morning, as we continue our series, we're going to walk with Jesus from the courtyard of the governor's palace through the streets of Jerusalem and outside the city gates to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. If you have a Bible accessible, either physically or digitally, and you'd like to join me in the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Mark chapter 15, which is our text for this morning. And as we pick up the action in Mark 15, verse 16, at the behest of the crowd that had assembled, Pilate has released the insurrectionist Barabbas, and ordered for Jesus to be flogged and crucified. Mark chapter 15, verse 16 says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. And so Jesus is led away by the Roman soldiers who then call together what Mark describes as a whole company of soldiers. And the word that Mark uses that is translated whole company of soldiers could mean that this was either a cohort, which was a subdivision of 600 soldiers, or alternately what was called a maniple, which was a subdivision of two to 300 soldiers. But either way, just like we saw when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, it feels like a lot and definitely way more than would be necessary to escort one person through the city streets and outside the gates. And the extent to which Jesus is outnumbered here is even more sobering considering everything that happens next. The soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they began to shout, Hail, King of the Jews, at him, which, of course, was a mockery of the salute that was normally given to Caesar. From there, 
Jesus was beaten. And remember the sheer number of soldiers here and how outnumbered and how alone and how isolated Jesus must have felt and how helpless. And everything about the sadistic torture that Mark describes in these verses reveals the reality that a person condemned in the way that Jesus was condemned really had absolutely no rights to speak of. Now, all of the specifics that Mark records here in these verses, the robe, the crown, the shouts of hail, king of the Jews, the, the soldiers falling on their knees to pay homage, they all highlight what is really the focus of Mark's narrative of the crucifixion, and that is mockery. Mark's narrative of the crucifixion has mockery as its focus. And, and, and Mark, I think, very much wants us as readers to feel that. No, he wants us to experience that with Jesus. And unfortunately, what we've seen so far is just the beginning. So as the soldiers lead Jesus out from the courtyard of the Praetorium, as we seek to be companions with Jesus and enter into his suffering, I want to create some space for us simply to listen to the next portion of Mark's narrative. And so I want to invite you now, wherever you are, uh, to find a comfortable position. Find a comfortable position and close your eyes if you are comfortable doing that or if you're able to do that. And allow your body just to settle in your seat. Take a couple of deep breaths. Breathe in deeply and then slowly exhale. As I read the next portion of Mark's narrative, as you listen to the words, try to imagine the scene as Mark describes it. As they led Jesus out of the courtyard, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, 
you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. One of the things that makes Mark's gospel unique is Mark's writing style. Mark's writing is succinct, it's economical, and it is very matter-of-fact throughout, which is precisely why the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four New Testament stories of Jesus' life. And there's a way, I think, in which that style is particularly haunting here in these verses, which is maybe best exemplified at the beginning of verse 24 with the simple phrase, and they crucified him. Death on a cross was was a horrendous way to die, and one of the cruelest methods of execution ever devised. The Roman philosopher philosopher Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. And he went on to write, It is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. Cicero, incidentally, was not alone in his disdain for crucifixion. In fact, the Romans actually did make it illegal to crucify Roman citizens because they considered it such a deplorable form of execution. And that, of course, again, highlights, like we saw last week, Jesus' lack of status as a Roman citizen, this fact that he is, in fact, being crucified. Now, before a prisoner was nailed to the cross— They were stripped of all or nearly all of their clothes. And so once Jesus' clothes were removed, the crossbeam that Simon of Cyrene had carried for him would have been thrown on the ground and Jesus would have been placed on it. Next, a Roman soldier would have felt for the bony area that connects the wrist to the hand. Once that depression was located, the soldier would have then driven a heavy wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. After both of Jesus' hands were nailed, the crossbeam would have then been lifted into place, either at or near the top of the upright post that was already present in the ground. And then Jesus' feet would have been nailed to the cross. At that point, The crucifixion was complete, but the suffering was just beginning. And perhaps all of that is why Mark repeats the word crucified three times in the space of just four verses 
here in Mark 15 as a way of, of emphasizing again and again and again and confronting us again and again and again with the cruelty and the horror of the method of Jesus' execution. And just in case uh, the image of Jesus hanging on a cross did not clearly enough read loneliness and isolation, Mark underscores Jesus' abandonment even further as he describes his position between two rebels in verse 27. It says they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. It's interesting, in the original language, the phrase that Mark uses that is translated one on his right and one on his left is almost exactly the same as the words that James and John say back in Mark chapter 10, when they request for Jesus to let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And after telling them that, that they didn't know what they were asking, Jesus asks them in Mark Chapter 10, verse 39, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And so here is Jesus now drinking the cup that he alluded to there in Mark chapter 10, the same cup that he prayed for his father to take from him in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a reference to the death that he would have to endure. And of course, James and John now are not on Jesus' right and left because they had literally left. They are decidedly not present to assume a position of dishonor alongside Jesus on the cross. Well, as Mark's narrative continues, we see that beyond the physical suffering that Jesus endured as he hung on the cross— Beyond the struggle simply to breathe and the congestion and the thirst and the sheer exhaustion, Jesus was also comprehensively mocked and humiliated. Listen again to Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 27. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You know, one of the things I think that is just so prominent as we listen to these verses are all of the different people on the scene uh, who, who have a go at Jesus as he's suffering. The passersby, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, even the two rebels, they're all hurling insults at Jesus. They're all mocking him. And of course, what's what's ultimately underneath all of that mockery is judgment. Jesus is being judged by people here 
as a criminal. He's being judged by people as an impotent king. He's being judged by people as as powerless to save himself. And all of this is happening because, you know, if we're honest, this is what we do. Judging is what we do as humans. And we have this incredible propensity to judge others, to judge circumstances, and also to judge ourselves. As humans, we have an incredible propensity to judge others, to judge circumstances, and to judge ourselves. And as we seek to be companions with Jesus, as he suffers on the cross, Mark's story very much invites us, I think, to be aware of that. And not just to be aware of it in the behavior of the passers-by and the religious leaders and the rebels, but it also invites us, I think, to be aware of it in ourselves. And what happens to Jesus here as he is on the cross is an invitation for us to become aware of all of the ways that we judge and the pride and the arrogance and the smugness that drives it. And this is something, by the way, that that I've been becoming acutely aware of in my own life. And I have to confess, it's hard to look at because once you become aware of it, you begin to see how pervasive it is. Right? And, and, and not to mention that teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount that says, do not judge. And, but, but we miss so many good things, actually, when we judge. Because, because there's, there's an oversimplification and, and, a dis, and a dismissiveness that is just part of the fabric of judgment. And a couple of months ago, I unexpectedly ran into a story uh, that I first encountered, believe it or not, almost 30 years ago now, when I was literally just starting out in full-time ministry. And if you've been around Highway for a while, there's a good chance you've heard me share it, because it is, uh, it is one story that I have no qualms about repeating. It's a Portuguese fable about a poor rural farmer. And this farmer had one horse, and that horse was his most valuable possession. It was so valuable, in fact, that his neighbors were always encouraging him to sell it for the sake of his own livelihood. But the farmer refused to even consider it, because the horse was like a family member. He would never sell it. Well, one day, the farmer woke up and went outside to find that his horse had been stolen. And his neighbors came around and saw what had happened, that he had lost this prized possession. And they said, surely this is a curse from God. And the farmer replied, don't be quick to judge. All we know is that the horse is gone. Say only that. Only God knows what is a blessing and what is a curse. Well, a couple of weeks later, the farmer went outside to discover something very unexpected. The horse had returned. 
whether it had been stolen or not is unknown, but it had come back. And it didn't come back alone. The horse returned with a dozen other horses. So suddenly the farmer had 13 horses. The neighbors came around and saw what had happened. And they said, surely, surely this is a blessing from God. The farmer once again said, don't be quick to judge. Only God knows what is a blessing and what is a curse. Well, this farmer had one son. And one day, the son went out to break one of the new horses and was bucked off. And in the fall, the son broke both of his legs. The neighbors came around. They saw the son with two broken legs. And they said to the farmer, surely this is a curse. The farmer once again said, don't be quick to judge. Only God knows what is a blessing and what is a curse. Well, the nation that the farmer and his neighbors lived in went off to war with a more powerful neighboring country. And all of the sons from the community went off to war and were killed, except for the farmer's son, who had to stay home because he had two broken legs. And the neighbors, in the midst of their grief and their sorrow, came by the farmer's house and said, Surely this is a blessing that your son didn't have to go off to war. He's still alive. And the farmer said, Don't be quick to judge. Only God knows what is a blessing and a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. Well, much like we see from those who were mocking Jesus as he was on the cross, the neighbors in that story show us once again how quick we are to judge. But the farmer shows us something else. The farmer shows us an entirely different posture. Right? Our posture when we're judging is prideful. The farmer's posture is a posture of humility. And our posture when we're judging is prideful. The farmer's posture is a posture of humility. The humility of acknowledging that, that we don't know everything in the moment. The humility of acknowledging that we don't always have all the information. The, the humility of acknowledging that there are complexities and nuances that, that make things more than simply binary. And that posture of humility is so important because it leaves room for all the things that we don't necessarily see. It leaves room for the things that only God can see and the things that only God can do. It leaves room for the gifts of redemption and for the gifts of restoration and for the gifts of resurrection as well. Because while Jesus may not have come down from the cross to save himself, as those taunts encouraged him to do, he did 
rise up from the tomb three days later. And so as we walk with Jesus and seek to enter into his suffering, may we see ourselves in the story. May we open ourselves to all of the ways that we, that we judge, all of the ways that, that we are judging others, all of the ways that we are judging circumstances, and all of the ways that we are judging ourselves. May we release our pride and our arrogance for a posture of humility. And as we do that, may we experience freedom, the freedom to see and receive the unexpected gifts and surprises that God has for us. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the space to sit with this story of Jesus' lived experience on the cross this morning. And thank you for Mark's narrative and for the way that it so powerfully and vividly shows us the loneliness, the isolation, the abandonment, the pain, the anguish, the mockery, the humiliation, and the judgment that Jesus endured. And Father, we confess this morning that, that it is easier to be observers of Jesus' suffering than it is to be companions with him in his suffering. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us today to see and to feel and, and most importantly, to respond to whatever it is that you would have us to see and hear? Would you continue to shape our hearts after yours? as we walk together through this season. In Jesus' name, amen.